Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Livebook support is coming to Xdocs. Here's a quote from Jose. We will be launching a Livebook website, and we want to add a Run in Livebook badge. And clicking on that badge will point to the LiveMD file, which will you then be able to preview and run in your favorite Livebook instance. And it can be your local or a cloud-provided instance. So the idea is to include this badge on all Livebooks generated as part of XDoc. End quote. I'm really excited about this, like interactive docs. Like, have you ever gone to like a website, an API like docs website, and like they actually make it inter- interactive? Like Stripe's uh, docs actually are, are interactive. I'm really pumped about the the possibilities that this could bring. This is this is kind of exciting. I'm also wondering what is they're launching a live book website, like not a live book instance, right? Because like there's still all the security concerns, right? So I. I, I don't know what that part means. I'm curious what that would mean. But anyway, exciting news nonetheless. Yeah, that's what I was wondering when I read that, because they're always talking about the security concerns for running it on the cloud. Yeah. The way I'm interpreting this is that this is more around on my own project, say I have like an open source library, I could have a run in live book badge that would be sitting there, which would make it just really easy to launch. So for me, it's kind of like, you know, how JS Fiddle is really popular, just to let people try something out in a browser where you can share a link to it. And it's like, that's kind of what Livebook lets you do, but it's not just front-end JavaScript stuff or CSS. It's here's some actual executing back-end code, which I, I think it'll be really interesting to see where this goes. Yeah, I I, I just can't imagine it getting a lot. I don't know. I'm speculating. Maybe I shouldn't, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like you said, JS Fiddle, that works so well, though, because everybody's browser works, you know, runs JavaScript, right? But like your browser's not going to run. Hey, unless we can get Wasm, an Elixir thing running Wasm, then you can run Elixir in your browser and then that's a safe environment, right? Okay. All right. I'm starting to be a believer now. Come on, Lumen. Let's get it going. <laughs> yeah. Our very own Mark got some documentation included into the official Phoenix docs for running Phoenix 1.6 on fly.io. So we'll leave a link to this if you're interested in running Phoenix 1.6 on fly. Yeah, just what's nice is the Phoenix docs include a little section on deployment, and they have deployment on a couple different platforms. And so now Fly is just one of those other platforms that's being represented. And next up, Wojtek Mock created another example using mix install. I kind of get the sense that he's, you know, having fun with this and just kind of seeing how far can I push this? Because this time he was doing it with the Oban library. But this is interesting to me because Oban requires database tables to be set up for where it stores its jobs. And he's running this all out of a single file EXS script. So this is a mix install script shows in a single file how to connect, create the database, run a migration, and start using a library that depends on these data tables. That was just really interesting for me because it, it opened up my mind a little bit to think that maybe scripts could be doing a little bit more than what I had kind of pegged them for. And not necessarily that I want to run Oban like this at all, but that, hey, maybe I could have scripts that actually are interacting with the database and they're not a full mix project that they're loading up and, and running out of. Okay, take Postgres out of the picture, replace it with SQL, uh, SQL Lite, rather. Right. That makes a lot more sense now. 
Now you have like a, a, a powerful CLI that can still use a database to do its data manipulation or whatever. All from one script. That's pretty awesome. I don't think Open works with SQLite, but maybe maybe it could. Anyway, pretty interesting. Also in the news, Eric Ostridge over at SmartLogic uh, shared a library that they created while uh, working on Elixir applications that send SMS messages. So they open source library, thank you very much, called Augur. It's, uh, think about Bamboo or, or Swoosh, where in dev mode, it can show the email being sent. Uh, Augur does the same thing, but for SMS messages. I heard about this. And I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Why not? I imagine that there could be different providers underneath, you know, like Twilio would be one, but there's there's likely others. And Augur is just your interface for interacting with those things in a nice, consistent manner. And I'm all about not getting so much vendor lock-in, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can get your interface, in this case, Augur or Bamboo or whatever, and you just interact with that interface and you can trade out your your vendor underneath, ah, I love it. I love it. That way, if your vendor makes you mad, you can switch. <laughs> <laughs> so a tweet came out announcing Broadway 1.0 is out with a new logo, a new website, and a new dashboard. Give that a peek. We noticed that it silently was announced earlier when somebody noticed that there was a website and Voitech said, shh, wait for something coming up exciting. So this must be it, a 1.0 with a cool dashboard. We'll drop some links in the show notes and give it a try if you're interested. Broadway's an excellent library. Yeah, if you went to ElixirConf and you saw Marla Sariva talk about Broadway, he demoed what looks like this dashboard is about. It's a little bit Star Trek-y. So if you imagine like a Star (laughs) Trek dashboard, right, with a bunch of blinking random lights, this Broadway dashboard uh, has a topology of of your producers, consumers, and the colors on those consumers and producers change on based on how backed up they are, or how much work they're doing. So really, really, really cool, really, really cool. And there's a link to the ElixirConf talk that I'm, I'm mentioning here in in the blog post. I'm convinced Broadway is one of those like pillars in the Elixir community. I think I feel like it's the the way to to, to do big data consumption and processing and all that kind of stuff. And Michael Crum shared his personal successes with using the new live session slash three feature in LiveView. And anecdotally, he was sharing that with using Phoenix 1.6, he updated and live redirects are two to four times faster using this new live session. And the reason is, is because the latest version of LiveView no longer requires an extra round trip to the server that the redirects, when you're going from one live view to another live view, it can actually share the same socket without having to tear down and go up to the server and create a new socket. So it's a lot faster because there's fewer hops. That's really cool. That's a great improvement. And that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. And when you're doing websites where you have just a ton of live view pages, and that's what you're switching between, that just makes it that much faster. Yeah, and just to be clear, though, like this isn't a free upgrade. You actually have to like adjust your code to leverage that. But it looks like it'd be pretty easy to do. Yeah, but just heads up. You, yeah, you won't just see it automatically from 1.6. You, you have to do a little bit of adjustment in your in your routes. But this is a paid upgrade, you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> it's like premium? It, it's a paid update in the sense that you have to put in a little work. Yeah, <laughs> but just a itty bitty bit. Live View Pro. <laughs> So Exorcism V3 will be launching soon, and at the time that this comes out, it might actually already be out. Angelika Taborska talked with us in episode 50 about it, where she shared a lot of what was going into the new version 3, and that they've been working on this as the whole Exorcism IO platform for some time. 
And it sounds like it's uh, they've reached a milestone where the Elixir track is going live with it. So congratulations to them. Very exciting. Uh, a little security update for all of you OTPers out there. On September 30th this year, 2021, the root CA certificate, DST root CAX3. I'm sure all of you know that by, by memory now. This one will expire. And this one's important because that's the uh, that's a certificate that uh, Let's Encrypt uses. And so you can imagine there's a lot of websites out there using Let's Encrypt. And browsers are not going to be as affected by this expiration. So there's already solutions in place to, to allow browsers to, to access these securely still. But that's not always the same for lower level programs. And so one of those lower level programs is OTP. OTP patches have already been released to handle this fallback solution for Let's Encrypt, but that means you need to upgrade to these patches or make sure you're on a, on a, a good version. So there's lots of details in, in, in this. Um, we're not going to talk about it here. So we'll, we'll have links um, to those details. But here, here's a quote, um, just so you have a little bit more information before we leave you. If you are on OTP 23.3 or 24.0, I would strongly recommend you to upgrade to a patched version before the end of September. That's like in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Older versions are not impacted in the same way, so no patches available there, but those versions may still experience issues after September, so you're kind of on your own. But for the newer versions, just in 23 or 24 OTP, just make sure that you get to the later patch versions and you should be covered. Is Brom Verberg, who went into a lot of detail in some nice posts where he wrote up about this, kind of explaining what the this situation is. And we're going to be talking with Brom on an upcoming podcast episode so, and we'll make sure it comes out in time. So you have some time before the end of September to understand who does this affect? How does this impact me? What do I need to do? But yeah, we're looking forward to talking with him so we can all make sure we have a, a solid understanding of what the impact is for our projects. And lastly, we got some listener feedback. You can send us feedback, show at thinkingelixir.com. And there we received a question from Thiago asking about what free options there were for learning Elixir that still use best practices. So I thought I'd just share my response here in case it might be helpful for anyone else. But I just want to point out that the official Elixir documentation is really good. And that's kind of where I first started when I came to Elixir. And so we'll have links to that in the show notes. But also another resource is Elixir School. It's a great free resource where a lot of different people are contributing to the different articles that go over the different concepts. And I just also want to mention that I offer a free pattern matching hands-on deep dive course on thinkingelixir.com. It is 100% free because pattern matching is such an important concept to get in Elixir. It shows up everywhere and it changes how you code. I just considered it like really important that people be able to have fun with it and feel the power of it and get it. And so that's free and you can check that out on thinkingelixir.com. So those are our three resources. Do you guys have any that you want to point out? Elixir School is really it for me. But other than that, yeah, Hexdocs. Uh, you mentioned the ElixirLang docs. Um, so that, like there is ElixirLang.org and they've got good docs there. But I, I'd rather go to the Hexdocs. Those are so much more fully fleshed out. Yeah, uh, great place. Yeah, there are guides and everything in the Hexdocs mm-hmm. for Elixir and everything. Yeah, we should include a link to that too. 
I just ask Mark when I have questions about Elixir. <laughs> yeah. We'll include his personal cell phone number in the notes. <laughs> you say that jokingly, but that's actually a good point. Like there's actually, there's good other, uh, other good resources too that are a little bit less organized, right? And that's just the community areas, right? There's Slack, there's Discord, there's Telegram group out there. There's elixirforum.com. Those are all good community places to learn Elixir too. Now they're not going to be organized to teach you Elixir, but those are good places for specific questions. If you have a question or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. You can message us show at thinkingelixir.com. And that's it for the news. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Peter Ulrich. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So Peter, I was excited to be able to have you come on and talk with us because I saw something you were doing. You're playing with nerves and I could tell you were getting excited about it. You were blogging about it and you're showing cool pictures. And it's like these super tiny little boards with these SIM cards on them for like talking to phone systems. Like this is so tiny and so cute. And you got them like stacked on top of each other. And I was like, man, that is awesome. I just, I think something like that, playing with phone systems and stuff is perhaps, it seemed to me to be an easier way to get started with nerves as opposed to worrying about separate motors that are attached and servos and and things like that. So I, I thought that would be a cool place to start. And I wanted to hear about where you were going with this and what you saw as what made this interesting for you. But before we jump into all that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. So where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? I live in Germany currently, but I'm moving away in two weeks to Kenya in Africa I am not originally a software developer, but currently I do work as a senior software engineer with Elixir. But I started off as a psychology student, actually, and I have a bachelor or undergraduate degree, as you would say, in psychology. And while doing that, I realized that I'm much more drawn towards software engineering and building cool stuff and coding and so on. So, uh, yeah, I switched to the software engineering master after my bachelor and finished that as well. I mostly focused on architectural topics, design patterns, and so on. And yeah, I, I like to share whatever I learn because it's not only that I love to share it, but it's also for me to get through it or to summarize everything uh, for myself. So if I write a blog post, if I give a talk, it's like 50% for me to really understand the subject and 50% for the other people to share it. So I did that with Python, which I originally work with. Um, and I spoke, for example, about design patterns in Python. If you look on YouTube for that, you will find my, uh, my video at the PyCon in Sweden at the first one. And I also spoke about event sourcing at the Elixir Conf in Europe. And uh, in Africa, there was a conference where I spoke about how to future-proof your software. So I personally like to write Elixir and particularly like to think about architectural topics, design pattern topics. And as your previous guest, um, the Spotify software engineer said, I like to think about socio-technological problems. That's a hard word to say as well because of my background as a psychologist so all these things taken together let me where i am right now i also have been a podcast host before i hosted the explain blockchain podcast um, where i for myself summarize stuff about the blockchain i also tried myself in the youtube space where i started a youtube channel peter and code where i talked about software architectural stuff but um, there was a lot of work to just cut and edit these YouTube videos. So uh, I went back to blogging and just writing down everything uh, in text form, which I find is easier, it's, it's faster, and also it's easier to share as well. 
That's funny that you mentioned getting into nerves, Mark, because I think one of my very first nerves projects was uh, controlling a sprinkler system, which is maybe not the easiest way to start. I joined a remote meetup where they were building sprinkler systems together. And once I got it all hooked up and I could type in the REPL to open a zone and I could type in the REPL to close a zone and the sprinklers turned on and off, I was like, all right, I'm done. (laughs) I put it away and I never touched it again. Was it that much work to set it up? It was a lot of work for me because it was... I don't do a lot of hardware and there were a bunch of components that I had never used before. So getting that all up and running was a lot of work for me. And I was very proud of myself for getting that far, but I was not about to go tie it into weather APIs and trust my own board to do better than my already existing smart controller. (laughs) Actually, that is kind of related to my history with uh, hardware development as well, or embedded system coding. So my first hardware project was actually with an Arduino board and the Lua language. And I built myself a Batman sign, you know, the Batman logo. I built it as a, as a wooden sign and I put LEDs behind it. And I put it somewhere against the wall, connected it to the local Wi-Fi, wrote a little like HTML website where I could configure the lights. And that was everything I, I, I did for that. And it was a great project, but it was really hard to get started with it. And I had no clue whatsoever. And if it wasn't for a good friend of mine who showed me the ropes, I would never have succeeded at the project because I didn't know how to start and I didn't know the first thing to do. And that's something I realized it's much easier with Elixir and particularly the the NERFS library because it just gives you everything you need from the get-go. You just create a new project, you burn it to your Raspberry Pi and you're immediately good to go. You can deploy your code, you can test your code. And that was so much easier. So I actually did a little project two years ago where I used NERFS and Raspberry Pi to just wave with a flag like i had a little flag that you have on like you know small uh if you had a at a party and you have these small snacks you know there's like small flags in them so i waved that with the with the motor and there was so much more fun and it took me like a day and with the batman sign i spent two or three weeks even just doing that yeah so that was my my last project and now with the with the latest projects i realize more and more often how easy it is to have that idea that you just want to build something really cool to get the Raspberry Pi, get a module or whatever you want to do, just set everything up and get going with it. And for me, I mostly have a working version, like a very first MVP on the very first day, or maybe the second day I'm working on the project. And from then on, it's only improving the project. So that also shows that this productivity you can have with Elixir was successfully moved to the hardware development side as well with the NERS library. So I was really, really impressed to see that these guys and girls, everybody, were so successful at um, bringing this productivity also to hardware development, which I have never experienced before. So I think this is a good time to jump in. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what this particular project was that you were writing about and what it was that got you excited uh, to take this on. Because I mentioned that this involved little SIM cards for cellular communication. So tell us, what was this project? What were you trying to do? So my current project was about sending text messages with a Raspberry Pi using NERS and a, it's called the WaveShare hat that you put on top of the Raspberry Pi. And I got the idea by watching Justin Schneck on YouTube. He just talked about NERS and how, how NERS uh, can be useful in the IoT area and the IoT industry. And 
I don't know, I really got inspired and I thought, yeah, how cool would it be to send a text message from my Raspberry Pi using the, uh, the IEX REPL, for example. And yeah, I just looked up the modules. I bought everything I needed, tested it out. And a day later, I was sending my first text message to my own phone, which was for me, you know, it just, it's something everybody has in their hand, a smartphone, but nobody really knows how, how it works. And if you do these things yourself and you just test them out, you actually learn a lot. And I came to appreciate a lot about the hard work that was put into our, you know, premium smartphones that everybody has, because I realized how damn hard it is to get it working. Just to get into that, a problem for me is, for example, the communication with the chip that actually sends the the messages. It is asynchronously released. You just send off a message or like a, a command and you hope that it gets there and then you wait for an answer but yeah it might happen instantaneously it might happen a bit later and the whole chip itself has it like a state machine inside of it which is super complex and yeah it's just you you send off your command into the void and you hope that it actually does something and you may wait for a reply and it might or might not come and and to to get that super complex communication so so well to to develop it in such a good way that everybody can use it on the smartphone and that's like fault tolerant and, and, and idiot proof basically you know that is an engineering feed uh, an engineering success that it, for me is really really incredible so did you have to buy like a plan to use this chip well i just used a sim card that i had for my own for my own carrier for my own uh, okay internet provider i had a second sim card okay that makes sense I always wonder why it's so hard to have like text messages shared on our computers and on our phones. So it's something that I've always been a little bit interested in. So if I ever switch away from a Mac, it's like I'm going to miss terribly having messages just automatically synced to my computer. So there's something I've always been interested in. So that's really cool. Kate, I heard that you have nurse experience and probably hardware experience as well. Have you ever worked with like AT commands, maybe? By experience, you mean like I've done it once, so I have <laughs> very, very little experience. <laughs> I have not worked with what you are referencing. I don't even know what it is. Well, these AT commands is what you send to that chip to actually send text messages. And basically, those are the instructions that you send to the chip to do something. And that's what I was referring to. To send these AT commands is, yeah, just like screaming into the void and hoping that something happens. <laughs> so we have a link to this in the show notes for you, dear listener, where you can see like, he's a lot of pictures that really help to understand what's going on here. But like the Raspberry Pi Zero, I don't have one. I have a Raspberry Pi 3B, but like the Pi Zero is super tiny. It's quite cute. <laughs> and then the, it looks like the WaveShare hat that has the antenna and holds the SIM card. That looks like it has the exact same footprint of the Pi Zero, so it just stacks right on top. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. It, it fits right in there. It's really made. Well, it's not made for that particular Raspberry Pi, but it just happens to have the same dimensions. So you were inspired by this video from Justin Schneck. And did you have any idea of, this is what I want to do with sending text messages, something beyond just, I want to see if I can send a text message. Did you have any other plan for where this might go or what you could see as a possibility here? Never really, no. I must admit, these are purely experimental projects that I'm doing. And it is my way of, of learning, really. So I have this idea, you know, just randomly, how can I send a text message from a Raspberry Pi? And then I, I see what I need to make it happen. And uh, the, the problem here is also, once I 
finish that first step, once I get that MVP, I send a text message, basically. I personally tend to just drop the whole project. <laughs> so maybe that sounds familiar to some of you. But that's why I tell myself, okay, I not only want to succeed at what I'm planning, but I also want to write it up to make a podcast episode about it back in the day or YouTube a video about it. Because for me, the whole project is only done when I publish something about it. And that's also for me, like an extra learning step where I summarize everything. And, you know, I actually, when I write these blog posts, I redo the entire project. Like I tear everything apart and then I go back and to square one and like build together the hardware and everything, write the code new, just to really make sure that if you, the reader, read the blog post, that you can really do every single step and that I haven't forgotten something in between. Because you mentioned that I have a lot of pictures in the blog post, what I thought when I got started with Nurse and the whole ecosystem is that I couldn't really find a lot of beginner-friendly blog posts really idiot proof blog posts about how to connect that wire to that socket or whatever, you know, really easy, really s simple steps. So that's why I thought, okay, if I write a blog post about you, for example, the sending a text message, I really want to document the entire process and make it accessible for everybody who wants to do it as well. So that's why I really took a picture of every single step and explain also, you know, that for example, you have to put the wave share hat on like in a certain direction on top of the Raspberry Pi, because you can also get it wrong and then it doesn't work. And that's why I really documented uh, everything there. Yeah, that's really true. When I was doing one of my first nerves projects with the sprinkler thing, I just had no clue what I was doing. And if it wasn't for that, if it was that nerves remote meetup that they did, and they might still be doing it actually, and it's, op it's remote, so it's open to everyone. John Karstens, I think is his name, was doing a presentation on how to hook everything up. And I would have to like go to the recording of that remote meetup and pause it and like very carefully examine all of his diagrams that he was putting up on the screen and like, okay, reverse a couple more seconds. Like, what is he saying? Like, let me listen to what he's saying again 10 more times because I don't fully understand what's going on here. And like very painstakingly had to connect all the components together. So when I got out working, I was like, wow, this is amazing. That was not easy. <laughs> I realized, though, because two years ago, I did this flag waving project. And back then, I really had to do the same thing. I had to look at schemas, which wire had to go into which input, basically. And I had to do that myself. And I didn't know anything about uh, hardware at that point. So I didn't know what I was doing. And yeah, back then, it took me quite a while to get the wiring correctly. And then to know that I had to send like a certain code or a certain output voltage on this gpio socket whatever i don't still don't know what all these things mean but back in the day it was really from the ground up you had to do everything yourself and now coming back two years later to the ecosystem what i found really really great to see is that for the most common modules you will find an elixir library how to use it and for example, I'm working on the second project where I just have some temperature um, measurements and I have a CO2 measurement. And actually, I, I was a bit afraid about that because I knew, okay, maybe these modules don't have an existing Elixir library and I have to spend a lot of time on developing myself. But I was very happy to see that also on the NERVS website, they have a library of all their like module libraries. And if you buy a module, you can first thing go there and have a look whether there's a library 
referenced. And most of these libraries, they show you exactly how to get started. So just like start a, a gen server here, send this code, and you immediately get back the measurements you want to. And that's really nice to see that now they have these super beginner-friendly entry-level libraries where you can just put something in the Raspberry Pi and get started right away. Yeah. And speaking of things that help you get started, like huge shout out to whoever did like the over-the-air firmware updates. Like that's a game changer. The first time I did hardware was not that easy, but I remember starting up my nerves project, like you burn it to the disk once and then you're good to go. As long as you got your config for your Wi-Fi correct the first time around, like you're good to go, like no more burning. That was awesome experience. So you guys mentioned some different features like over the air updates and the library of libraries so you can find existing code to, to leverage. I'm just curious now, Peter, with you having started on this project, what was it like doing a project in nerves here today? Like compared to what you've done previously, you know, was it as hard as you thought it would be harder, easier, kind of where did it fall with the experience? It was easier than I expected. If you don't leave the trodden path, I think the expression is in English, as long as you don't go outside the boundaries. So if you have a module and you have a library that is written already for that module is super easy to get started. It became even easier by the Nerves Lifebook project that Frank Hunleth um, presented a couple of weeks ago, because now you can write the code on the Raspberry Pi basically and execute it immediately on the beam. So you can just do this experimental development and just see what happens if you send certain codes and do certain things right on the Raspberry Pi. And Kate, you mentioned earlier that over the air updates were a game changer for you because you could write the code on your computer and then send it to your device over the air. And that became even better. It's incredible to see that this happened in a year or two, you know, uh, the speed of that is just incredible. So yeah, back to your question. When I started the current projects, I was positively surprised that a lot of work has already been done and I can just use the library to do certain things. But once you hit that boundary or once you leave the trodden path, then it becomes very difficult. And I would say then you have to become an expert or you have to be an expert to stretch the boundaries, to expand the boundaries of that like beginner friendly ecosystem a bit. And I experienced that in the project where I sent the text message because the chip, the GSM chip that I was sending the text messages with didn't have a library for the vintage net modem library. And the problem there was that I could not use the mobile internet connection of the WaveShare hat because I did not know how to communicate with that particular part of the chip. And I just had to set it up in a certain way that internet was working out of the box, but I didn't know how to do that. And I looked at the vintage net modem library that supports a couple of chips, but not this one. And that's where my journey ended, basically. I, I tried it out a day or two to write that modem myself, but I didn't know what I was doing, really. I just experimented around and I didn't get anywhere. So un unfortunately, there that's where I stopped then. And that goes to show that you have this very beginner-friendly ecosystem, but once you reach the edges of that ecosystem, you fall down, then your beginner-friendly journey will, will stop. I think that's where you actually have to understand the hardware and how to 
interface with the different devices and because they have their own you know, maybe you're just communicating over pins instead of like what we're accustomed to in software development where we just talk to an API, right? I'm just making requests in a more high level way. So then you start getting into real hardware, right? Yeah, then things get real, real <laughs> fast. It's like I have this fan in my house that requires a remote con- to control it. And that's just terrible because like the inevitable conclusion to all remotes with kids is that they just get lost and broken and so of course it has been broken and lost <laughs> and it's like i would love to just send I, I don't know how they are communicating but it's some frequency or something that they're communicating like could i just like put a little raspberry pi up on the wall and like just be done with it and control this fan because it's just a worthless fan now but that is probably going outside of that trodden path that peter spoke of and i do not know the real world of hardware and that sounds hard (laughs) you wrote a second blog post that we're going to link to in the show notes as well where you talked about using livebook with nerves and what that was like getting set up and just being able to you know evaluate elixir code on the device through a web page was that like a game changer for being able to poke and prod? It made this initial writing of code much easier. So where you just have your your Raspberry Pi, you just set it up and you go into it and you just want to talk to that module that you attach to it. And you just want to see what you get back and what you can do with it. If you do that kind of exploratory development, it's great because you can do it right on the device. You don't have to write it on your machine, on your computer, and then upload it to the device, wait for the device to reboot, get into the IX REPL, and then test it out. You can just do it in the in the UI and execute it immediately and update it. What I have yet to test out really is how to get from that point, from that level, to moving that code to your actual project and for me that until now was basically i write it on the life in the life book and then i copy paste it into my real project try to wire it into there like a, create a new module and so on but that's a, always a second step so if i could dream about the next feature if i could you know uh, wish for something that would be that you can write modules in Lifebook and then somehow store it or save it to your original file system. That you always have like a copy of what you've written in, in Lifebook on your computer, basically. So that if your Raspberry Pi gets overwritten or whatever, you always have that copy. That would be the, yeah, the, the whole, holy grail for me, but I'm not sure whether it's technically possible. Yeah, I could see how that would be fun and very difficult to pull off. So I was curious, you mentioned you had some difficulty actually dealing with the modem. Did you see if there was a way to receive a text message and be able to catch that event or anything in nerves to so you could have that two-way conversation? It is actually possible, yeah. I haven't done it, but yes, you can send a text message to the number and there is a command, an AT command that you can send to that chip to give you like one or two or ten latest text messages so you can read them out from the chip i guess they are that the text messages are stored on the chip and you just read them out but yeah i haven't tested that really but what i did though is making phone calls with it and that was a lot of fun as well so i had the raspberry pi connected to just a microphone like a apple microphone and headset and I was calling from that Raspberry Pi on my smartphone, on my iPhone. And then I had the iPhone against my ear. And in the other ear, I had the headset and I was talking to myself. <laughs> and that worked surprisingly well, I must say. 
um, there was a connection issue first, but eventually I was talking to myself and, but that also showed me that just getting the initial thing going, just to making a phone call is pretty easy. But then once you want to go to the level that iPhones have with the quality of audio that you're receiving and sending, it is a way different leak. So the, the first step is easy, but then going to the, to the high level is really difficult. Oh, see, here I thought that was going to be your new phone, right? You're just going to have like, it's a, it's a different kind of <laughs> dumb phone, smartphone thing. <laughs> Actually, I think that would be possible if I put a lot of time and effort into it, but I am not really willing to do that. However, what I'm currently working on is a new project and it requires me to walk around among the people outside and people look at me funny when I do that <laughs> because what I, what I'm working on right now is a life tracker where you just have your Raspberry Pi and you carry it with you. And it in real time, it tracks your GPS location and sends it to a server and displays it on a, on a website with live view. And for that, yeah, I have the Raspberry Pi in one hand, a battery in the other one. And I just walk <laughs> around and try to have a good GPS signal. And I guess people are thinking, oh, what a kind of weird guy. What's he doing? Yeah. What's he doing? Exactly. But yeah, technically you could create a phone. And yeah, the good thing about that is you would really know what happens with it because you've written all the code. You know that nothing is sent off to, you know, a third party and so on. That sounds fun. And so it sounds like you're playing with this other life tracking GPS thing. You just have ideas that you're continually playing with. What, what are you playing with next? Well, right now I'm focusing on this life tracker and I will also write a blog post about that, but it's a big larger because it also requires setting up a server where you re receive the, the messages. And I'm using Phoenix channel for that. But then what I also didn't know is it's not quite that easy to connect to a Phoenix channel from another Phoenix server, from like another um, Elixir application, basically. But again, there's a library that you can use and just give them all the parameters and it does it for you. But somehow I had the idea that it was easier. So there's one large lesson that I already learned, which is that it's much harder to write fault-tolerant code for hardware than it is for writing web applications and so on. And the reason is with the hardware, you have different boot-up times. For example, with the life tracker thing, I have basically three things that have to happen. One of them is I have to connect to the WaveShare hat and get a GPS location from that. And that might take up to two or three minutes until the WaveShare hat has an accurate GPS location. But that's fine because I can just ignore the first GPS information I get because I know it's not accurate yet. I just ignore it. But what's, what's much harder is I need to set up a internet connection with the Raspberry Pi. And I connect to my iPhone in that case. I just have like a, a hotspot where I cannot connect to. But that also takes a while and it might not always work. That, for example, was a problem I had in the beginning where I required a Wi-Fi connection. Otherwise, my system would break and crash. And for normally, if you do web development, you kind of assume that the service you're talking to is available. Like very rarely do I see code where people say, oh, if the service is not available, like the one day per year with a 99.99 availability, you know, then I do this. Well, also just thinking about this situation, like what happens if this external service is not available? What happens to our service? Like should it crash? Should it somehow handle it or so on? That's something you don't often think about. Well, at least my experience when you do web development, but with hardware, it immediately is, is important because yeah, as I said, like 
maybe you get re uh, you receive GPS information, but uh, like in my project, maybe I receive GPS location, but then I'm unable to send it to the server. And if I don't handle that case where the the Wi-Fi connection isn't there, or that I haven't joined the Phoenix channel, which is also like a second step, then I have to somehow handle the case. So immediately, just by doing three things, which like sound easy, just receive GPS location, send it to the server, you immediately have so many problems you have to think about. Yeah, because then you get into the whole, well, I might want to have some way of managing a, a little pool of state where I have received these GPS signals. And as soon as I have a good connection again, I can send them on. And how many do I want to track and all that? Yeah, so yeah, it becomes... When you're dealing with those unreliable connections, like you have a device and you go through a tunnel on the train, you're just going to lose your your cellular connection. And yeah, so it's a, a whole fun new world. It's like, hey, tech meets the real world. And how do I have to deal with like geography and physics? <laughs> exactly. And it's so much more difficult to interact with the real world than just to be in your happy place where you have a web server and the server is always there and the database is always there, you know. But I realized that doing this is so much easier with Elixir than with any other language. So as I said, I was a Python developer before. And today I thought about, okay, how would I solve this problem with Python, for example? You know, having like three steps, receiving GPS information, connecting to Wi-Fi and joining the Phoenix channel. And I probably wouldn't have been able to separate these kind of things to like have one thread or whatever per responsibility but i would have to do it in a sequential way which also you know is bad for performance and it's also bad for like the product so maybe you want to receive gps information but store them offline until you receive a connection to your server right and you couldn't do that if you were probably writing python well maybe you could but it becomes much more much harder and with elixir i was just able to create three gen servers or just two gen servers really and one of them was just receiving the information and sending it to the second process. And if the second process wasn't there or wasn't connected, well, it just ignored it. Or maybe it's, you know, I could easily add something like store it to the database, store it to a cache or whatever. And just by having the Beam and the OTP uh, framework around it, it became so much easier to apply these different business requirements, basically, and also to handle the fault tolerance, right? Maybe what, for whatever reason, the Wi-Fi connection broke or crashed and I have to restart it. And I still want to receive the GPS information. Like it should not be blocked or anything by the other process, right? And all of these use cases, all these like edge cases you would normally have to think about become so much easier if you use Elixir. Well, I really appreciated the quality of your blog posts, the detail that you went into. For you, dear listener, if you're interested in playing with Nerves live book as a great way to start exploring your hardware. And with tools like this and blog posts like this, that really, I appreciate that you took the time to really walk through the process, having gone through that whole sequence before where I really need to know, understand like exactly how do I touch this to that and make that actually work. It's a great resource for someone who's wanting to start playing with cellular communication with their nerves projects and just getting into IOT in a, a very approachable way. So I, I think that's awesome. So we'll have links to all that in the show notes. But if Peter, if people want to get in touch with you, maybe follow you online or just see what you're doing next, where should they go to do that? To attack with me, you can go to Twitter, which is PJ Ulrich, U-L-L-R-I-C-H. And if you're interested in my blog posts, my 
conference talks and so on, you can go to peterulrich.com. Great. We'll have links to all that in the show notes. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.